Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. So uh, I want to transition to our sermon today, which is going to be on the triumphal entry of Jesus. Would you stand with me for the reading of the word of God? It says this in Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied it at a, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, why are you, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, we ask this morning that you would be with us, that this wouldn't just be another Palm Sunday, but that for those of us that have been following you for a long period of time, or those of us that are just now considering you, Jesus, or those of us that have followed you for a long time but have our doubts, would today be a day of, of confirming faith, a day of the Holy Spirit um, enlightening our hearts and our minds and affections towards you, God. And so uh, would you be with us even right now? Amen. You can be seated. So I'm a big proponent of having proper expectations in life. I don't know how many people are that way. Um, but what I mean is this. Like, we all have expectations, right? And a lot of times our culture and our context dictate our expectations. So if you're in Chicago, you have access to a lot of tremendous restaurants. And if you choose out a, a, a Michelin star restaurant here in the city of Chicago, which is one of the highest honors a restaurant could have, your expectations is that food is going to be good, right? You're going to pay a lot of money, most likely, and the food is going to be excellent. If the food is not good, it could be way better than what you'd get at a fast food chain restaurant. You're going to be extremely disappointed, right? Because you spent the money, you had the expectation, you heard the chef was outstanding. Expectations matter. And they frame the way that we think about the world and the way that we, the way that we think. If you grew up very poor, you going and, and getting to the middle class may seem like a very significant move, because your expectations were that you grew up poor. 
If you grew up rich and you lost all of your money but ended up being kind of in the upper middle class, that would feel like a significant demotion if you grew up extremely wealthy because your expectations are, if I'm rich, I'm always going to be rich. If I'm poor, I'm probably going to be poor the rest of my life because that's just the way things are. And expectations really matter when we think about God as well, don't they? And so in the first century, there were certain expectations for God, expectations for who the Messiah would be, expectations for Jesus in his life as a possible Messiah figure. But even today, there are expectations for God. We don't often realize it, but they're impressed on us by our society and our culture and our context. Some of those expectations might be different than the way things actually are, but they're expectations nonetheless. And so we have trouble when Jesus or God doesn't meet our expectations. Maybe some of the expectations that would be pretty common, maybe in this room, but maybe even in our context and culture, about God would be that, we, that God wants people to be good and nice and fair to one another, but the standards are, are pretty easy, right? God loves us, but I should gen- and I should generally have a happy life and get what I want. My purpose in life is to be happy and to feel good about myself, and as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, I'm good to go. God doesn't really get involved in my life unless, my life unless I have a problem, and if I have a problem, God better step up because he is a problem fixer. And unless you're a completely terrible person, you go on to some sort of good afterlife. If you're the worst, maybe you just die and don't exist anymore. Right? These are some of the expectations maybe our culture would put on whatever God that they would believe in. But that's not the case if you were to go around the world. The expectations where God would be different. The expectations in the first century certainly were different. And so when we come to a text like Mark 11, it may seem so far, so distant from what we think of about our daily life. And so it's hard sometimes to understand what this would have meant to the people that were there that day. Like how significant of a moment in time the triumphal entry would have, would have been. It would have been shocking. It would have been exciting. It would have been one of the most significant days in the people's lives up until that moment in time. And for the disciples, the people that had followed Jesus up until this point, it had to be one of the most, the greatest moment of their life. So the triumphal entry. You hear, uh, it's actually in all four gospels. And all the details are, are, are essentially the same. Sometimes the, the donkey is called the colt, and sometimes the colt is called the donkey. And essentially, a colt is, a, is more of a general term, and the donkey is more specific, so there's no big deal. But anyways, it's recorded across all four Gospels and independently between Mark and John. And so just, just to kind of explain this, I think this is important for us, even as people that might believe that the Bible uh, is the inspired word of God, Historians that are not Christians look at the Bible, and when they look at, at the stories in the Gospels, the ones that are told multiple times across different Gospel writers are the ones that they believe are the most likely historical. 
Now again, most of us in this room believe the whole Bible is, is historical and true and good, but just so you know, this particular one, because it's in all four Gospels, and in particular in Mark and John, who were very distinct and written at different times, this is called an independent record of an event. And so even historians that would not call themselves Christians would say this is a highly reliable text. This is a very significant text, highly likely that it is historical. And this should strengthen our confidence in what we, re- what we just read because most likely, right, according to everybody, this happened. And the context of what's happening at this time is that once a year over Passover, everybody, and I mean everybody from all around the countryside of Israel would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It was like a pilgrimage to the holy city and they were, they'd spend the time there, they'd go to the temple, they'd purify themselves, and then ultimately the Passover meal would be a significant moment, the moment in the calendar of the Jewish faith. Just so you kind of have a have picture of what Jesus did in order to get there, Bethany is on the, is on the, um, the Jericho Road a couple miles east of Jerusalem where Jesus was staying. And the journey would be uphill from Jericho to Jerusalem because the temple was on like the top of a mountain. And there was one point in time where you'd get to kind of like this high cliff and you could see the holy city and you could see the holy temple and it's like a magnificent moment. You could go do that today if you traveled to Israel. And it would be, I'm sure, quite breathtaking. They would come to Passover every single year and, and because of this significant event, there could have been a million people in the city which by Chicago standards isn't very big, but in that time period, a million people in a city was, I mean, a significant amount of people. And that's why Jesus most likely couldn't stay in Jerusalem. He had to stay in Bethany. And so just to kind of give you a context uh, of what was happening is that the Passover, people would come for the whole week, but Passover was Friday night. And the Jewish leaders who did not like Jesus most likely wanted to eliminate Jesus and kill Jesus before that Passover dinner on Friday. So most likely, Monday was this triumphal entry, and then Tuesday, Jesus cleansed the temple, and then Thursday was the Last Supper, and it kind of goes on and on. That's the context of what's happening this week. And what's really interesting about this particular passage in Mark is that Mark particularly draws out this narrative about what's called the messianic secret. Has anyone ever heard that term before, the messianic secret? It's this idea in Mark that Jesus doesn't want anyone to know that he is the Messiah. So you read through the Gospel of Mark, and over and over again, Jesus will do a miraculous sign, and people will say, um, you know, this might be the Messiah, and Jesus kind of ignores them or doesn't answer them or almost denies it. And there are moments in time when, when someone like Peter declares that You know, Jesus says, who do you think I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, don't tell anybody, right? This has been revealed to you by God. Don't tell anybody. And so there is this kind of movement and a lot of scholarship to say, Jesus didn't actually think he was the Messiah and that's why he denied it. And later on, his disciples changed the narrative and said that he believed he was the Messiah, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and that's how you know, Christianity happened. But Jesus really didn't do it. But we just said that this, this passage is one of the most reliable ones in all the New Testament. And what is Jesus doing in this space? 
Jesus is taking control over this narrative and he's doing something prophetic. He's doing something that would disrupt. He knows exactly what him getting on this donkey would do. All of his followers, all the people, all the excitement of Passover and, and, and Jesus gets on top of this donkey and rides into the city. This is a significant moment. It's interesting that Jesus has never said to do anything uh, he never said to be riding a donkey or riding a horse or anything else in the entire gospels. He's always walking except for this moment. So this is a significant moment. It should stand out. It's not supposed to be something that it, it, it should be like, wow, something is happening here, right? And the backdrop of what the Jewish people were expecting makes this an even more prophetic, a more substantial act if you understood what their mindset was, they, they were thinking. See, in 63 BC, which was about 90 years before this, even after the Jewish people had been set free from exile, they really had never come and been a nation again like they were under King David and King Solomon. And the expectation was that one day that would happen again. One day all the nations would come and worship at the temple. One day all the nations would come and be under the leadership of the Israel king, Israel's king. And in 63 BC, it got even worse because Roman legions under Pompey ended independent Israel. So they weren't even their own independent country anymore. The golden age had, that the prophets had spoken about had seemed to never come. And they were under foreign dictatorship, under pagan rulership. And they longed for this messianic savior, this Davidic king that was supposed to be coming. So the triumphal entry changes everything. Jesus knows the Old Testament. That's obvious from his life. He knew the prophecies. In particular, he had observed the prophecies of Zechariah. Zechariah, if you read that book of the Bible, describes a shepherd king appointed by God over his people. Chapter 13 in particular says that this shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. Mark 14, 27, in, in, in Mark 14, 27, Jesus applies this prophecy to himself. He says at the, the, the Last Supper that all of you will fall away. Judas, you're going to betray me. Peter, you're going to deny me. All of you are going to scatter. And in me, in this, the person of Jesus, I'm fulfilling this prophecy of Zechariah. What Jesus is doing when he mounts a donkey's colt and rides down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem would have caused a stir. And that's what Matthew says. The city was stirred. Right? It's supposed to evoke this emotion that when Jesus did this, this was not a small thing. This was a significant moment. He's doing something deliberate here. He's fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, mounted on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. Read the whole thing, Zechariah 9, chapter 9. You can read it later today. Jesus is deliberately and provocatively claiming to be the promised king of Israel who reestablished the throne of David. He's living out his full identity. He is saying, I am the Messiah that is to come. No more messianic secrets. My time has come to declare to the world, 
Declare to the city who I actually am. And I'm the one you've been waiting for. This is a significant moment. Maybe outside of a few others in Jesus' ministry, the most significant moment. And it also strikes against the narrative that Jesus was helplessly killed. Some other scholars and other people in our day and age kind of set a different expectation. They're saying others have made it seem like Jesus was this helpless victim going to the cross. Now, he certainly was a victim of violence. That maybe the, the powers that killed Jesus and then the disciples said, well, you know, we can figure out a way to, to make it so that this death has significance, that the resurrection happened and we can continue to live out the, and pretend that Jesus is the Messiah. But think about what this narrative tells us in the chapters leading up to it. I just told you that Jesus intentionally said that, hey, go get this, go get this colt, go get this donkey. He, he, whether he set it up ahead of time or whether he knew that the donkey would be there and that it would be fine for them to take it, either way, he still is showing something significant. Mark 10, 33 through 34, we see that Jesus had told his disciples just days before the triumphal entry what, ex- what exactly would happen, that the Son of Man would be delivered into the hands of the enemies. He would be flogged, he'd be spit upon, that he would be mocked, that he would be put to death, but that he would rise from the dead. So Jesus knows exactly what's gonna happen. He declares it to his disciples. He sets up the colt to come. He intentionally goes to Jerusalem. He goes and gets the, the, the donkey. He provoked these events. Jesus knew that his death, uh, the expectation was that he would die. He knew that expectation. The cross did not surprise Jesus. This event was necessary. His crucifixion was not an accident. Though he was a victim of the violent culture and people's misperceptions and misunderstandings, Jesus went willfully to the cross. And this is significant. Jesus had embraced his calling to go to death. He had provoked it himself. He had understood himself, the shepherd king prophesied in Zechariah and assumed his role through this provocative entry into Jerusalem. He knew of Judas's betrayal. He predicted Peter's denial. He knew of the floggings and more. And this is the thing that's so confusing. Apart from the resurrection, why would these, these writers, why would these authors even write this stuff down, right? Like, why would this be recorded apart from what happens next week? What happens in just a few days, the resurrection? There's no point to write down this history. There were a few historians, but the disciples were not those types of people. So the fact that this is even recorded in the New Testament shows that they were either trying to manipulate people into believing something that wasn't true or this actually took place. Jesus did all these things. He was dead. He was buried in a Palestinian tomb. There isn't a page in the New Testament written apart from the resurrection of Jesus and the reality of that fact. If that hadn't taken place, none of it would even be available to us. But I think that when we look at um, Jesus and we look at the triumphal entry, we begin to see some problems. 
and why it was problematic for the people at that time. See, they expected Jesus to ride in on a horse to conquer Rome, to lead an insurrection so that they could be free politically and socially from any sort of foreign rule. Their expectation was that Jesus was going to be the coming king and set them free from oppression. But Jesus is trying to redefine what the Messiah would be. To redefine what the kingdom of God was all about. Jesus chose to ride the donkey instead of the horse to be you know, the, the horse is the conquering hero. The mule that he could have chosen too, which is also in the cult family, would be ones that kings typically rode in on. But he came humbly and declared that he is the one that's bringing peace. He's bringing a kingdom that's universal, that's peaceful, that's not territorial, that not national, not violent. He came to, got, to die to give freedom from sin, something that people didn't even recognize that they needed at the time. He came in on an animal of peace, like I said before, which was correcting kind of their mistaken nationalism. Wow, we probably have some of that work to do ourselves, don't we? So many of us are caught up in Christian nationalism. And then there's just a level of that that's infused our lives because of the context and culture. So Jesus is trying to redefine this for the people in the first century. See, Jesus had come to see that the whole place, the whole city had come to symbolize the determination of Israel to do things their own way. In particular, to embrace a vision of God and God's kingdom, which was fundamentally different from the vision which he was announcing and living out. Their vision would have climaxed in a Messiah coming on a war horse. Jesus' vision led him to act out the prophecy of Zechariah. Your king is coming to you humble, mounted on a donkey. This simple yet profound symbolic action continues to resonate out into the world where even among people who profess to follow Jesus, the war horse is still preferred over the donkey, isn't it? So Jesus just simply did not meet their expectation. And that's how they can, on Monday, be laying down their cloaks and and screaming out, Hosanna, And just a few days later, some of them probably joined into the chorus of crucify him. Isn't it fascinating? That people, when their expectations aren't met, turn. And it can be a matter of days. Jesus' next major action was to cleanse the temple, which was his judgment upon the religious uh, leaders and the religious establishment of his day. And so Jesus is just, about, just as much about redeeming Israel as he is about redeeming the whole world. Jesus is declaring to them in this moment that I am the king, but I'm a, a king and I deserve the hosannas, but I am a king that's different than what you expected. And I think that when I think about the whole city being stirred, I think this is what Jesus did constantly. There are so many of us and there are so many people in our context and our culture today that are lukewarm about Jesus, aren't they? Aren't we? 
Jesus just simply does not give us that option. <laughs> That's why he can, they can go from the hosannas to the crucifixion within just four days. And I'm wondering if Jesus might be calling us to be stirred by his message, by his actions once again. Maybe we need to decide if we're on the Hosanna side or the crucifixion side. Honestly, I know that sounds a little bit grim. Jesus says, I want you either hot or cold, but lukewarm. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm going to spit you out. See, you don't, you don't give out Hosannas and you don't lay down your cloak, which is a symbol of everything that you are, if Jesus was just a good teacher. You wouldn't go into marriage this way. What's the minimal level that I can be committed to my marriage vows without you divorcing me? Would you ever say that to your spouse? You go into marriage and be like, all right, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to just kind of meet the bare minimum requirements. And I think that that's how, how so many of us respond to faith, respond to religion. What's the minimal amount of commitment I can do and keep and just kind of like stay in the club? But Hosanna, Hosanna means something so significant it means in the Old Testament, save now. God, save us now. Will you please come and save us? But it started to change a little bit. And in the New Testament, it actually means salvation has come. So when they're yelling Hosanna, they're saying salvation has come in you, Jesus. The Messiah is here, come, has come to rescue us. And if Jesus really is that king, he really is that Messiah, because that's what Messiah means, then that means that Jesus has the right to tell us how to live. It means that he gets to define our expectations. That whatever expectations we may have for Jesus need to be redefined in light of who Jesus is. And it's all dependent upon whether or not Jesus is really worthy of our hosannas. Worthy of our praise, worthy of our cloaks being laid down, worthy of us taking up our cross and following him. And I'm worried. I'm worried about us. I'm worried about the church as a whole because if our expectations are anywhere what I said when we started, I started this message, and we encounter situations that don't meet our expectations, like tragedy and illness and job loss and difficult marriages or not being able to find a partner at all if that's something that you desire or challenging, you know, lots of things happen in our lives that just are not what we expect. When God doesn't live up to our expectations, we begin to resent God or go our own way. If Jesus is Lord, to be honest with you, he has no, there's no obligation for him to live up to our expectations if they don't measure up to what the person and work and the declaration of who he is. If we're going to live a life 
If, if Jesus allows us to live a life of suffering and disappointment and even failure at times, we can know that it's short-lived, that he is Lord, that God never promises us a, a happy life or an easy life. And why would we expect that a disciple would be greater than his or her master? And our master chose to go to Golgotha. What I'm trying to impress on us today is that we must begin to tailor our expectations to what God decrees, not who we want God to be. We have to trust that Jesus knows what's best. Do we trust him in that way? Do we trust that he knows what's best? Do we trust him to save us in a way that we actually need to be saved? I think too often people approach religion with the idea, does, does Jesus disagree with my actions? Or like, does God disagree with my actions? And I think a better starting place is to ask if you disagree with Jesus' actions and what kind of king that he declares to be. I think the, the Bible and our and expectations, and, and this isn't just any like word for any, but I just think we have to, to be willing to say that if Jesus was willing to suffer and, and die, that we should expect to have to go through some difficult things. And life is not always going to be happy and pleasant and easy. I think that's a, that shows just how evil and sinful this world is. But what Jesus is declaring at the cross is that he sees our suffering and he suffers with us. And he suffers instead of us. And he suffers for us. So I want to invite you today on the day of the triumphal entry of Jesus to shout Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest, saying salvation is here. It's in the person of Jesus. And I'm going to allow Jesus to define my expectations. I'm going to allow Jesus to define what it means to follow him. I'm gonna allow Jesus, I'm not gonna to, to go for, and when he doesn't meet my expectations, I'm not going to begin to turn and say crucify him a few days later. Amen? God, we uh, are in awe of, of the, the triumphal entry of how you purposefully and provocatively declared who you were so that there was no confusion And though the cross shows the incredible, the, the worst evil in the history of the world and just how corrupt and sinful we are and the world is, we know that you chose that path for our sake, that you became poor so that we might become rich. And so God, today, um, we are so honored and blessed to be able to shout out Hosanna and mean it because you are the one that has saved, that you have saved us, that you have redeemed us, that salvation has come in you and you are our king. And so God, we are willing to leave our expectations that our culture and context has declared for who you are and what you must be. And we are allowing you to redefine those things today. We're saying that you are our king and we trust in you. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new.
To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.